How would you summarize the most important concept or idea from the Bible? How would you identify, what would you say, how would you describe what's most important for people to get from the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation? If you had, well, let's say 30 seconds to talk to someone about what you would want them to remember about the Bible, what you think the Bible would want them to know about its message to us, what would you say to them? Well, we're going to talk about that on the program, and I want to welcome you to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're happy to spend some time together every week because we want to encourage each other and help each other to grow and strengthen our confidence in God. Faith Is is a place that we describe faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we spend a little time each week trying to help each other grow in that understanding and in our actual trust of God because he wants us to trust him. I said I am a pastor and I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a church of real people who have the same kind of struggles we all have. We walk through life and we trust God and then we're learning to do that better. And in these days, we believe that's more and more important. And we're glad to have this opportunity for us to spend some time together so we can help each other. And I want us to think about this idea of what is the, the idea? What is it that, that we would say if we had just a few seconds, maybe a minute to talk to someone about the Bible's essential message or key message or most important idea? Now, we might think of several things that we might say to people. We might say that, well, the Bible is the revelation of God. Well, that's important. That's true. We might say, in fact, we might bring this to mind immediately, that resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, is the most important thing to, to remember. I like to say at Easter time or the Sundays following Easter that resurrection never ends, and it doesn't, and that's an important concept from the Bible. Maybe you would say the most important thing from the Bible is that it tells the story of Jesus. And that sounds like a really good idea to me. Uh, or maybe you would say, well, Jesus summed up what God expects of us by telling us that we need to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Maybe that's what you would say is the Bible's most important message. Well, it's really difficult sometimes to come down to what that message is, but by the time we finish today, I want to point you to what the Bible says is of first importance, or what the Bible calls the most important idea. And that'll help us as we think about how to, how to have confidence in, in God and how to live our lives, and also how to share with other people the Bible's important message and what it says to us. So we want to start as we unpack this a little bit in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was one of those really important prophets from that time, and he had a vision in Isaiah chapter 6, and we want to start by looking at that vision, and we want to look at the life of Jesus then, and then we'll finally get to a statement from one of Paul's letters that he wrote to a church that will help us understand what God is leading us to, so we will come to the right conclusion about the essential or most important thing we can tell people about what the Bible says, what God has revealed to us. So let me read from Isaiah chapter 6 just to get us started on this really, really dramatic story and really important one. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. That's an English translation that I frequently use. 
And if you haven't settled on one that you like, you might consider this one. But the most important thing I regularly remind everybody, the most important Bible translation, the most important English translation is the one you will read and understand and benefit from. That's what really matters. So choose wisely, choose well, and, and don't leave it on the shelf. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the Lord, or, pardon me, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that had that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. This is one of the classic stories from the scriptures of Isaiah talking about how he saw the Lord and what, what resulted from that is that he became the Lord's spokesperson and went on the Lord's behalf. So let's, let's take a look at the scene so we understand what's going on here. It's really remarkable. Uh, Isaiah talks about his vision, that he saw the Lord, and it talks about how he was high and lofty. He was as, an, as exalted as a king would be. Talks about how his robe, or more correctly, the hem of his robe, filled the temple, talked about how, how these creatures called seraphim were there standing above him and serving the, the Lord who was high and lofty, who, whose glory literally filled that temple. He talked about how the seraphim were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the response of those seraphim calling out to one another was that the now, try to imagine going to church and this happening. Well, I don't expect that it would, because this is a vision that God gave Isaiah, but, but imagine yourself there, and, and you hear the seraphim calling out to one another, and the foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. So the result of their proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies, his glory fills the whole earth, is that the foundations shake and the temple where Isaiah saw the Lord is filled with smoke. So there's the response of the worship of God from the seraphim, the shaking and the smoke. And now we see Isaiah's response. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Well, Isaiah knew that, that in ordinary situations, he was in big trouble because 
we certainly understand from the rest of the scriptures, and they understood in those days that you didn't see the king, the Lord of heaven's armies, you didn't see him and survive. You could not. We see that from previous stories where God protected people, so they didn't see him and they didn't die. So Isaiah recognizes when he says, I am ruined, he recognizes right away that he's in the presence of something he did not bargain for and did not imagine ever encountering. And so when he says he's ruined, he has good basis for that. He also says that he's, he's in big trouble because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. Now, I found that very interesting that that's the description and that's the way Isaiah thought of himself. And I was thinking about the context of this and why would Isaiah describe himself as a man of unclean lips that lives among a people of unclean lips? Well, the context would indicate that he recognized that, that in the presence of all of this glory, he could not speak because of his sin. And he recognized that that was the case. And he recognized that the sound of the voices that were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth was something beyond him. And he could not contribute to that. Now, this English translation says, woe is me for I am ruined. And that's a good one. There are others that say that use a different word. Isaiah would be saying, I am undone. Well, it's the same idea. They, they, for whatever reason, the translators just chose a different word. But there's another interesting idea from this is that one translator, and I saw this in more than one source, talked about how Isaiah could have said, I am struck dumb. In other words, I'm speechless. I can't speak. And one writer says that, well, that's a, a pun intended because the, there was this glorious speech of the holy, holy, holy to the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. There was that glorious statement. And now Isaiah, in the midst of that, realizes he can't say a thing. And so he, there, this writer thinks that there was a, a deliberate attempt to have a pun in the original language. Well, so Isaiah simply realizes that he must remain silent. There's nothing he can say. And it's because, as he described it, he's a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. Well, what's the, what's the problem with that? What's the kind of challenge of that idea of unclean lips? Well, I think what it's the challenge is it goes a little deeper than what we sometimes realize. And there's, a, there's an interesting statement that Jesus makes in Luke chapter 6 about this idea. And I think this is also something that, that we can learn from Isaiah's story. You see, it wasn't so much about the, the uh, lips that needed you know, a napkin maybe to wipe the chocolate off or something like that. That isn't, that isn't what's implied here. It's what's, what's clearly stated here is Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness. And probably we could learn a lesson from that when we think about the things that people say today, the things that we say. It's always a risk when you start talking, particularly if you start talking publicly, that you might misspeak. And, and that happens to all of us. But what, what's going on here implies something deeper that Isaiah recognized that, that he was a sinful person. And so what could a sinful person do in such an environment? And Jesus talks about how what comes out of our mouths, what we say comes from our hearts. 
So in Luke chapter 6, verse 43, Jesus is explaining it this way. A good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. On the other hand, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs aren't gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from a bramble bush. A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. That seems to be what Isaiah is concerned about here. He's concerned about that, that he recognizes his sinful condition and that what he says coming from that would not add anything and, and he must remain silent. So he recognizes that he needs help because he knows he's in trouble. He recognizes that he has seen the Lord and in the context of God's revelation in scripture is that that would result in Isaiah's death. And so what's to happen? What's to become of Isaiah now in this situation? So we see the seraphim proclaiming the holiness of the Lord, their response to God's presence there. We see Isaiah's response when he says, woe is me for I am, in I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. So now what's God's response to Isaiah? Now, this doesn't surprise God, of course, we understand that, but listen to God's response. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So God's response to Isaiah's need is to take care of the problem. And we need to think about that, don't we? God's response to our need is to take care of the problem. God does not leave us alone and helpless and without hope. Many years ago, I was in a class and, and the teacher asked a question I'd never heard anybody ask before. And it really kind of stunned me to be real honest and, and challenged me. And I love questions. So I, I was really kind of taken back by the question, but the teacher said, what's the worst thing that God could do to people? And I thought the worst thing. Hmm. And he went on to explain the worst thing that God could do for you, for me, for any of us is to leave us in our sin without help or hope. And of course, we know that God didn't do that. And we see that's what happens here with Isaiah. Interestingly enough, God does not say to Isaiah, no, you'll be okay. He does not say to Isaiah, look, I know how you are and, and we'll work around that. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't excuse Isaiah's problem. He recognizes Isaiah is correct, that he is a man of unclean lips. He does live among a people of unclean lips. He, he recognizes, God recognizes fully and straight up that Isaiah has a problem because of his sin. And that's confirmed in the response that takes place then in, in verse 6, because in verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal. This is Isaiah's statement. This is what happened to me. He flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar 
with tongs. So, so this is the Lord's response. He sends the seraphim to the altar. He picks up a glowing coal from the altar, and he uses tongs because that describes that it's hot, glowing hot somehow. And then Isaiah's own report of what he saw, his lips were touched by that glowing coal. The seraphim took that coal and took the tongs and took that coal and touched Isaiah's lips with it. Now, that's a very, very vivid image. None of us would want that to happen. That would be excruciating. The pain would be something we could hardly imagine bearing. And yet, this is the vision God gives us here, gives through Isaiah's experience, that we're to understand that Isaiah, apparently, because he didn't say, he suffered no ill effects from this, no physically ill effects, but it was an awesome moment. I don't, I don't know how Isaiah, he doesn't tell us, might have felt as he saw that glowing coal coming toward him. But the response after his lips were touched is this, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. So what God is saying to Isaiah is, yes, you have a problem. Yes, it's your sin. Or as it says here in this English translation, your iniquity. But I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to cleanse you from your iniquity. I'm going to atone for your sin. So in that moment, Isaiah, seeing the Lord, hearing the proclamation, holy, 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 recognizing from the shaking and from the smoke and from the real reality that he is a sinful man and he has seen the Lord, knows he's in trouble, immediately God moves to solve Isaiah's problem. You know, some of us need to realize that, that we have trouble with sin, and we need to realize that we need God's help too. And in that moment, God is eager to come and help us too. I don't expect you will have the experience Isaiah did, but I fully have confidence in God that when we trust him, he will forgive and take care of our sins so that we can be cleansed. That's part of what Isaiah experienced and part of what he would want us to know from that. But all of this is all set up so that the next part of the story could happen. All of this is just to prepare us so that one very important question could be asked, followed by one very significant response. So once Isaiah's sin has been handled, once his iniquity has been removed, once his sin has, is atoned for, then God speaks again. So you see there's this back and forth response in this passage of Scripture. So God's response to Isaiah's sin problem was the coal touching his lips and the pronouncement that his sin is removed, his sin is atoned for. Once that's in place, and once Isaiah is ready, now God can speak to him, and he does so in verse 8. Isaiah speaking again, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. So now Isaiah is ready for the critical, pivotal question that God asked here, who should I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah is ready, and, and it's pretty obvious from the story, I think you would agree, 
that Isaiah has no other response than to say, here I am, send me. And of course, God does send Isaiah, and he became one of the important prophets in Israel. God explains to him what he wants him to tell the people and how he'll run into considerable difficulty in that process. But nonetheless, God is sending him this newly, newly cleansed prophet to go now on God's behalf as God's representative to speak for him. So you and I, as followers of Jesus, having encountered him and having discovered to our delight that he forgives our sin and makes us new, now it becomes up to us. Now, how do we respond when God says, who will represent me? Who will go for me? And it's meant to be all of us saying what Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Now, some people might say, well, that sounds like a blank check I'm giving God. Yeah, it sure does, doesn't it? It sure is. You might be surprised where you end up, but that wasn't God's consideration or Isaiah's. God's concern was the sin being cleansed and Isaiah saying, here I am, send me. So when God speaks to you, understand that he might ask you to go and do and be involved in a way that that he has in mind for you and you and my, you and I, our responsibility is to say, okay, here I am. What do you have for me? In specific terms, in terms of the way I want us to think about what is the Bible's most essential or important or uh, critical piece of information that God wants to communicate to us. Now we begin to think that if God wants to send us, what is it that we would say to people that God wants them to hear? And what is it that is the most important essential idea or concept or truth from the Bible that God wants people to understand and hear? And we're going to keep unpacking that as we go through today. But that's the beginning here of Isaiah's commissioning and of our realization that God calls us to represent him, to be his ambassadors. You might not be Isaiah the prophet all over again. I don't expect any of us will be that but we're to be faithful in the way God calls us and in the place God puts us. And so we need to be ready to, to explain to people what it is that God wants us to say. So let's go to another situation where God called people to serve him. Okay, so we go to, to Luke chapter 5. And in Luke chapter 5, it's, it's commonly referred to as the place where Jesus called his first disciples. And and it is. It, it's a good story. It's, it's a little bit more to it than we sometimes think. But let's just read it from Luke chapter 5. I'm going to start at verse 1, and let's start thinking about what's going on here with Jesus and with these fishermen that are nearby, and they are about to be surprised in ways they never could have imagined. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, again from the Christian Standard Bible. As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret. Now, let's just stop there and think about this a little bit. There's a crowd pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word. So it might be important for us to think about what is it that God knows would be helpful for people to hear and that he would want them to, he would want them to know, he would want us to share with them. See, that's this idea of what's the What's of most importance? What's of first importance? What's the most important thing that we should consider talking about or telling people about? Because here they were pressing in on Jesus to hear 
God's word. The other thing we should remember is that it's really, it's really not all that important what you and I have to say, but it is of essential importance what God has to say. And they came to hear God's word. So Jesus was standing there by Lake Gennesaret. Now that's the way Luke puts it. We usually say Sea of Galilee. It's the same place, just a different way of describing it, different name. Verse two, Jesus, he saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. Very ordinary situation. Fishermen would fish, and then they'd come in and wash their nets in preparation for the next day after they had worked to, to catch fish. So nothing unusual there. The boats wouldn't have been unusual. Very, very normal kind of situation. But Jesus comes along and wants to borrow the boat. And nobody objects. They help him out. Simon helps him out. Verse four, or well, before that, I guess we should make sure we understand. They push out a little bit in the water so Jesus can be seen and heard by the people better. And then, then in verse four, when he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Now, a lot of times we look at this story and, and we understand that it's uh, quite a remarkable thing to catch that many fish. We understand that it's a remarkable thing for, for these guys to leave their livelihood and follow Jesus. But what was it that Jesus said they would be doing? He said to Simon, from now on, you will be catching people. So there's something going on here that, that we need to get, it, get at a little bit to understand what's happening. So Jesus is speaking God's word to the crowd. When he finishes, he asks them to go out a little farther and, and go fishing again. Well, they were the experts at fishing. They understood that. And they had said to Jesus, we've tried all night, but we haven't caught anything. But since you say so, I'll let down the nets. And sure enough, when they did, they caught so many fish, they could hardly handle it. The nets began to tear and they realized and they immediately knew they needed help. So they signaled to their partners to come out with their boat. They came out to help them take care of the catch. And they arrived and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. More fish than they knew what to do with. Pretty remarkable, don't you think, after fishing all night and coming up, really, how did he say it? Uh, we worked all, hard all night and caught nothing. 
until all of a sudden with very little effort, just at Jesus instruction, they catch more fish than they hardly can handle. They had to have two boats and they nearly sank the boats getting the fish in. So it's really quite a, quite a stunning turnaround and it certainly would have gotten their attention and, and it did. So, so the response to the crowd pressing in, Jesus asked for the boat and he goes out. He finishes speaking, finishes teaching the crowd, and he asked Simon to go out a little farther. At first, Simon mildly objects because he explains what, what the reality was, but nonetheless, he agrees to do it. Because he agrees to do it, and they go out a little farther, they put down their nets at Jesus' instruction, and lo and behold, they catch more than they know what to do with. So Simon, in this moment, recognizing the authority of Jesus in a way maybe he hadn't seen before, probably hadn't seen before, has a response to Jesus. Remember, Isaiah had a response to God. Now, in this same way, Simon Peter has a response to Jesus. And it says in verse 8, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. So we, all of a sudden, we have the same problem as before, don't we? What's going to happen? What's going on here with Jesus and Simon? We have the same problem that people always have. What does he say? I'm a sinful man. What do we recognize? All of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we recognize that we are sinful people and we need help. And Simon, he doesn't quite know how to respond because he doesn't think he even should be in the presence of the Lord because he falls down and says, I'm a sinful man. Some of us don't think we should be in the presence of the Lord because we're sinful. But Jesus invites us in anyway. And we're going to continue this in just a few minutes. So take a little break, take a rest, think about this, and we'll be right back in just a moment. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from HealthyCell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed 
with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Invincible American spirit drives the most audacious experiment in the history of self-government. America Out Loud celebrates the American spirit every minute of every day. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. We are back and we're still exploring this idea of what's the most important concept or truth or idea from the Bible that we would want people to know or that we should keep in mind when we talk to people. So we tell them what the Bible wants them to know. And we've been exploring from Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter six and his commissioning to go. We've been exploring now from Luke and the calling of those first disciples where Jesus was on the water. And we, we left that off after Jesus had gotten in the boat and gone out and encouraged them to put their nets down. And they caught a, a huge, huge haul of fish so much that it almost sank their boats. They almost couldn't get it in to their, to their boats because of the, of the quantity of fish. And when Simon Peter realized all this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Now, that's not a terribly unusual response in those days. That was common when someone was in the presence of a greater person. They would commonly fall, as Peter is described here. He fell at Jesus' knees and said to Jesus, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. So they're all there amazed at what's going on. And Peter is just caught up in that and says to Jesus, something we wouldn't expect, go away from me. Well, Jesus wants the opposite. He wants people to come to him. And he explains to, to Peter that, that he's going to, instead of catching fish, he's going he's to catch people. But let me read this little incident of Simon Peter falling before Jesus from the English translation called The Message. And I think the way this translation captures this really helps us think about how people often respond to God and how they feel in the presence of God. So Simon Peter, when he saw it, that it being the catch of fish, fell to his knees before Jesus. Master, leave. I'm a sinner and can't handle this holiness. Leave me to myself. I found that a remarkable description of what's going on here with Peter. Master, leave. I'm a sinner and can't handle this holiness. Leave me to myself. It's as though Peter is saying in this incident that he realizes how far he is from living a life that is holy, like he describes Jesus as as being holy in this situation. And he describes himself as being a sinner that can't handle this holiness. And he just thinks he needs to be left alone, maybe less bad consequences come his way. We don't know all that's going on here. We do know that that's a real insightful capturing of what Simon would have been thinking. I'm a sinner and can't handle this holiness. 
You know, I think there are some people today that can't imagine living a life separate from sin. They don't think that's possible. They don't even want to begin to conceive about it being possible. Maybe they don't want to quit doing what they know they need to quit doing. That's possible. But I really tend to begin to believe people just haven't got a grasp of what God wants to do for them. And Jesus doesn't explain it all to Peter in this moment. He, he just lets them be amazed, but he assures them that they shouldn't be afraid. And he assures them that, that they are now about to embark on a life that's involved in catching people, not fish. And just like that, in the way Luke describes it, they, they pack up the boat, get it on shore, and they leave. They go with Jesus. And that's a really remarkable response to Jesus in this situation. So if they were going to catch people now, just like we thought about Isaiah in his vision, what is it that, that God would want them to say to people? What is it that God wants us to say to people? Now, these men, Peter, James, and John, they became what we call the, the apostles of Jesus. And what was their message when it was all said and done? What were they to proclaim to the world that Jesus wanted them to share? What was it that Isaiah needed to share? Isaiah's message was specific for his time. The apostles' message was not as specific to their time, but more specific to all time, if that's the right way to use specific. And we need to think now in our time of all of the things that we could talk to people about and in all of the ways that we could describe what the Bible says, what is it that's so important that we need to focus on that and make sure that we do that. So in the apostles' tradition, I want us now to move to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here we find the answer that I've been promising from the beginning. Here we find what the Bible itself describes as most important. It's an obvious thing when we think about it, but it's different so many times from what we commonly think we need to tell people. And I want to suggest that that we return to the apostles' tradition and to share what this passage teaches us to share, because that seems to be what God wants people to know. And if that's what God wants them to know, and that's what's most important, then apparently that's what will help them respond rightly to God. And instead of Peter saying, go away from me, they will be drawn to Jesus because they realize there's the hope for their sinfulness. When Peter said, I can't stand all this holiness, we want people to recognize that God created them for holiness, and he prepares them to receive his forgiveness and his cleansing. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we want to go, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start with verse 1. We're not going to look at the entire chapter. There's a lot there. We're just going to focus on what's described here as being most important. And I'm going to read a few verses just to make sure you have the context. I don't want to, to leave that out lest it seem a little less clear, but we're not going to be able to talk about all of it. We're talk about what's most important. So chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians verse 1. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, he says a mouthful. That's, that's two verses that, wow, it goes on and on, doesn't it? But what Paul is saying here 
is I proclaimed the gospel. Now I use the word preached in this English translation. That's a good, that's a good use of the word, but I want to make sure you understand that that when the Bible like this uses the word preached, it's not talking about the technical stuff we usually think of as preached. We think of preached as kind of a technical word for a specific occasion where a pastor preaches in church on Sunday. This use of the word is fine, but it really means proclaimed. It's not limited to that. So don't fall into the trap of saying, well, I'm not a preacher, so I can't do this. That's not true at all. That's not what this is talking about. It's saying that we can tell people, we can proclaim this same gospel. It's also important to make sure we understand that he is saying, the gospel I preached. So what is the gospel? People have been talking about that for a long time. If I were to ask you what the gospel is, you would maybe have an answer. The question is not to fuss over what the definition of gospel is that you might hold or I might hold or somebody else might hold. The question is to say, what is the gospel that Paul says he proclaimed to this church. And we want to understand what that is because it's that gospel that he describes as most important. So we want to pick up now at verse 3. Paul continues, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So hang on, here we finally got to answer that question. What is most important? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. So he's, he's saying, this is most important, and I didn't make this up. I received this. He, he describes that a little bit later on, but it's important to recognize Paul is not pulling something out of his head. He is saying to us, this is what I received, and this is what I passed on to you. This is the gospel I received. This is the gospel I'm passing on to you. Let's pick it up in verse 3 again. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. So Paul is placing himself, and he does this more than one place, squarely in the tradition of the apostles, that this is what he received, the same as what they all received. This is the gospel that he wants people to know. And so we're going to summarize that statement that he makes there, beginning in verse 3. And I would encourage you to 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 read this and think on this, meditate on this. And I want to explain it a little bit and help us to, to think through it, but this is what Paul describes as the gospel that the apostles proclaimed. So no matter how we have heard gospel defined, if we want to share with people the gospel that Paul and the apostles shared with people, we need to think about this and focus on this. It doesn't mean that other truths from the Bible are wrong. It just means this is what Paul and the apostles called the gospel. And so if we want to share the gospel, we want to make sure we understand. Now, it's also under important to understand that he says that this gospel that I preach to you or proclaim to you is the gospel that saves. 
It says it in verse 2, it's the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preach to you. So when we think about salvation, this is the truth, this is the good news, this is the gospel that leads to a change of life or salvation. So this is the message that, that the Apostle Paul says, this is the message that saves, and this is the message that is of most importance that we should pass on to people. I want to break this down into four key elements as what is most important. And before I get too carried away and forget about this, I want to point you to a book that I found absolutely insightful that helped me understand this very much. It's written by a man named Scott McKnight. It's called The King Jesus Gospel. It's not a long book. It's not a difficult book. You can read it and understand it. It's a lot to absorb, so you may want to, like I did, reread portions of it and keep rereading them just because I want to, to wrap my head around what was going on here in 1 Corinthians 15 and how it appears throughout the other portions of the New Testament. But it's by Scott McKnight. It's called The King Jesus Gospel. And I strongly encourage you to take a look at that book if you're interested in this. And many of the ideas that I'm using here today come from that book. And so I'm grateful for for Scott McKnight and his work on that. So let's summarize. It begins in verse three, and, and I'll just read that again. That's where we get the idea of this is the gospel that Paul proclaimed. Verse three, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So right there in those few words, concise statement, we see what Paul describes as the gospel. And the first thing he says is that Christ died. So if we were going to begin telling somebody what the Bible calls most important, we would say Christ died, and we might add for our sins, because that's what it says here, Christ died for our sins. It also adds a statement according to the scriptures, and, and we don't necessarily have to include that every time. Some of this gets a little cumbersome. You have to think about how to, how to say this concisely to somebody. But the link that Paul includes here according to the scriptures is to help them realize that the coming of Jesus fulfilled what they were looking for. You know, sometimes we, we miss that. We think that what people need is salvation, and there's no doubt about that. But in biblical times, in New Testament times, the people there were anticipating Messiah. They were anticipating a person coming. They weren't anticipating salvation. They recognized that salvation came through the person. And so this is why the gospel that's being proclaimed starts with Christ. So the first element of this, number one, is Christ died. He died for our sins. Secondly, Christ was buried, a consequence of death. All right. Very clear, very important to understand that it was a real death. Third, Christ was raised on the third day. And again, he restates it according to the scriptures. The key thing to remember is when he says according to the scriptures is that he is linking this all with their history of the sacred story of God. It's not something that they should not have expected or something totally out of what they would expect. It's clearly something that the scriptures point to. And then finally, he says, Christ appeared. So four ideas, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared. Those four ideas 
are essential to the gospel. Died, buried, raised, appeared. Think about that. Isn't that what happened? Died, buried, raised, appeared. And isn't that remarkable? Now, we know there's a lot more in the Bible story than that, but that's where Paul started in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Died, buried, raised, appeared. And, God, and Paul says that God uses this story of Jesus, this reality that Jesus came and died, was buried, raised, and appeared. That's how God brings salvation to us. And so we want to begin to think about how do we communicate that to people using that language? How do we make sense of that in our world? Well, it's not really complicated. People who may not know the story of Jesus need to know that, hey, the good news is Jesus died for our sins. Now, I know a lot of times people start with, hey, by the way, did you know you're a sinner? Well, you know, the story in Isaiah, the story of Peter from Luke chapter 5, they didn't have to be told that they were sinners. They knew that. So maybe what we need to do is start with Jesus instead of start with sin. And maybe we need to recognize that, that God can give witness to that, and all we need to do is come along and say, hey, Christ died for our sins. That's good news. Christ was buried. It was a real death. And Christ was raised on the third day, and he appeared to many to validate that resurrection. And see, the key understanding about this idea of Jesus died is, is something that we're pretty familiar with, too. And again, I like the way Scott McKnight describes this in the King Jesus Gospel. He said, Jesus died with us. With us. Well, what does that mean? That means Jesus identified with the human condition. He came and he walked the earth just like we do. He lived life and experienced life just like we do not in a different way, not in a, a special way. He was with us. He knows our situation. Jesus died with us. And Jesus died instead of us. He represented us. He was a substitution for us. Well, what do we mean by represented us? Well, Jesus became sin for us. The Bible talks about that. And he represented all people because he was fulfilling the requirements of God and the covenant because people had sinned. The Bible says what? All have sinned. So Jesus represented that by taking on himself the sin of the world. So he, he represented that sin, and he was a substitute for all of us by taking that sin on himself. So when the scriptures talk about how Jesus died, that's another addition you can make to this gospel. Jesus died with us, he died instead of us, and he died for us, so that we could be incorporated into the life of God. Isn't that remarkable? So we, who had been just like Isaiah, who recognized that he was a sinful man and needed cleansing, so we, just like Peter, could fall before Jesus and say, go away from me, I can't stand all this holiness. Jesus died was buried, was raised, and appeared so that we could be incorporated into the life of God. What are the, some other implications of this? Well, I'm sure you can think about them as well, but it's important to understand that he died for our sins. Our sin was taken care of in the same way 
Isaiah's sin was taken care of. In the same way, Jesus assured Peter that he would be okay. Christ was buried. Now, when, when Jesus died, he really died. It wasn't make-believe or a sort of kind of, or it wasn't a different death than what we know. No, he really died. And they buried him as they would have anyone else who died. Now, the third concept that, that we get out of the gospel, out, out of the, all of the Bible, and, and you can see it here too, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Now, one of the interesting things about this, and, and this is why this short description is so meaningful because you can go in lots of directions from it, but it is the essential idea. Jesus was raised. He did not raise himself based upon the way Paul describes that here. He was raised to new life by God. So Jesus died, was buried, and God raised him from the dead. Now, that's a really strong statement, don't you think? That's a very strong statement that God intervened because of Jesus' faithfulness to die for the sins of people. He died for our sins. He was buried. And God then responded. Remember how God responded in Isaiah, the back and forth that we saw. Same with Peter and Jesus. Now we see God responding to the death and burial of Jesus by raising him to life on the third day just as the scriptures described. Nothing that went on in the story of Jesus was contrary to what the scriptures had been pointing to and with which they had been familiar. And then to confirm that the reality had taken place, it says Jesus appeared. It says to Peter, to the 12, to 500 men and women, to James, and lastly, to Paul. So Jesus' reality, he really did appear. And of course, you remember that when he appeared to Paul, was on the Damascus Road when, when he said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul changed his whole life and followed Jesus. So that's the, that's the heart of the gospel story, that if you needed to tell somebody in 30 seconds, what's the heart of what the Bible says, you could easily say to them, the heart of the Bible's message is that Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised to new life like no one else had ever been. God raised him to life, even though he died and paid the consequence required for our sins. God raised him on the third day. And then that was validated by his appearance to so many people that it could not have been a mistake, an accident, a made-up story, or anything else, because he appeared to so many people. And the story has to be true. And that story, that Christ died for our sins, paid the penalty for them, was buried like we should have been, was raised to new life like we could never hope to be, and then appeared to validate that reality. That is the story of the gospel that Paul and the apostles shared with people that literally changed the world. If that message, which 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, describes as most important. If that message changed the world from the time of Jesus to today, seems to me that we ought to recapture that understanding, that message of the gospel, and help people understand that the good news is that someone, his name was Jesus, 
died for sins. So that Peter, when he says, go away, I'm a sinful man, we don't have to do that. Our sin was taken care of. As Isaiah was taken care of, it was atoned for. We're cleansed. Jesus died for our sins. He took the penalty of death, our last enemy, and was buried. And God, in response to his faithfulness and his innocence, but his willingness to take the sin of the world on himself comes along and raises him to new life. And then he appears to many people to validate the reality that God has changed everything. That's the good news. That's the good news that can change your life if you embrace it, that will change your life if you follow Jesus. So when Jesus says in Mark chapter one, in, in, in introducing himself, to everybody, he says, he invites them to change their lives and believe the good news. The good news is that Jesus has arrived. He did die for sins. He was buried. He was raised, and he now lives forever. And one day we will live forever with him as well. That's what's most important. That's what the Bible calls the most important, or one translation says it's of first importance. So you think about when you talk to your friends, when you think about yourself, what is the most important thing the Bible says? Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day, and Christ appeared. My prayer is that he, by the power of the Spirit, will appear to you and convince you of that reality so you will change your life and follow him. Follow him all the way home because he is the one who can lead us in the way we should go. And we'll talk some more about that next week. Thank you.